The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God lives forever. So God, we ask that you'd speak to us today. And uh, we ask expecting that you'll speak to us today because you are not a silent God. You are the God who speaks. I pray that you'd help us to hear today. Pray that you'd open our ears, soften our hearts. Lord, I would ask for myself right now that you would just open the text to me, that I would see what I need to see. Lord, I confess feeling a great need this morning, just feeling uh, dull. I need to be sharpened. And uh, Lord, we need to be sharpened as a people. Lord, so speak to us. Open our eyes, enlighten us. For your glory, Lord, that we, would, that we would magnify your name in this world. We want to hear from you. And so, Lord, we ask uh, that you would let that happen today. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. As we prepare to look to God's word, I want to invite you to think through something with me for a moment. Uh, we've talked a lot this morning about what's happening in the world. And so, I think it's not inappropriate for us to try and empathize a little bit. Think about the church in the Ukraine right now. Lots of different manifestations of the church, but it's not far-fetched that somewhere in the Ukraine there was a church very much like our own. Same size, same temperament. And three weeks ago, this church that was very much like us was gathered in a room like this, and they were worshiping together. And they were praying, because they knew that something was going on. They knew that their, their world was about to shift, and they were praying and pleading and asking that God would intervene. And that same church today is gathering. Some of them are gathering in subway tunnels. Some of them are gathering in in foreign countries where they're seeking shelter. That same church today, they're they're worshiping in various places. But they're worshiping with a fear that they won't have a home to return to. A country to return to. Some of them are worshiping with a fear that they won't have a, a father to return to or a husband. And that's not a hypothetical scenario, right? There are people right now who are, who are gathering to worship. And my question for you today is, what song do you think they're singing at a day like this? What does the church sing at a time when it feels like everything is dark, like their whole world has been turned upside down? Last week we studied Psalm 88. And Psalm 88 was a song that was easier for us to empathize with because it spoke to the individual lament. And we feel lament individually. We've had individual hardships, individual loss, individual illness. And that song gave voice to our individual heart cry of lament. But Psalm 80 is harder for us to empathize with because it is the cry of a national lament. It is the people of God corporately wondering why it is that God has allowed them to experience their hardship. And that's harder for us to wrap our mind around. As I wrote the sermon, at at times I was tempted to try and draw from our experience from the last two years, but it felt cheap to do so. The last two years were hard, but it felt cheap to apply that to to what we find here. Psalm 80, we believe, and it, it seems almost certain that Psalm 80 was written at a time when Assyria was ravaging the northern tribes of Israel. If you remember, there were ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, And God used the Assyrian army. He brought them through and they wiped out the ten tribes in the north. And the Assyrians were not just an enemy nation. Uh, To try and put some context to it, the Assyrians were notorious for their terrorist tactics. They were worse than the Nazis. 
the things that they would do to their enemies, to their captors, the things that they would do to, to try and just inflict terror upon the nations that they were coming up against. And they were ravaging their way through the people of God. That's the context for this psalm. Now, interestingly enough, the psalmist doesn't point to any specific historical details. I think one commentator gets it exactly right when he says, the psalms are purposefully vague in reference to historical events. Why? So that they can be used in a variety of situations. I think that's exactly right. So the psalmist is composing a song for his people to sing while his people are being destroyed by Assyria, while his people are feeling disillusioned and they're feeling feeling fearful, he writes a song for them to sing, but he leaves it vague enough that it can also be sung by the church in Ukraine who have been chased out of their home. They can sing Psalm 80. And he leaves it vague enough that the church in Ontario can sing this song when it feels like all is dark, when it feels like everywhere they look is loss, loss, loss. That's what this song is. And while our circumstances inevitably change, the God that we cry out to remains constant. Charles Spurgeon captures the heart of this psalm when he says, Our greatest dread is the withdrawal of the Lord's presence. And our brightest hope is the prospect of His return. At the heart of this psalm, we discover that as bad as our circumstances might become, and the psalmist is dealing with some horrific circumstances, church in the Ukraine, dealing with horrific circumstances. As bad as the circumstances might become, the very worst part is feeling like God is not looking anymore. The very worst part is feeling as if God has turned His face away from His people. William Plumer, another great commentator, notes, if He withdraws, it matters little who else is present. This morning we're going to worship our way through Psalm 80. And in doing so, we're going to learn how to sing as the people of God when it feels as if He's looked away. How do we sing when it feels like God has looked away? That's what we're going to learn as we look at Psalm 80. So if you have your Bible open now, I hope that you do. I invite you just to look at the song as a whole. Again, it's a song. It's meant to be understood as a whole. And if you look closely, you're going to find a a consistent recurring refrain. So for example, you see it in verse 3. If you scan down, you'll see the same, same refrain in verse 7. And then if you scan down again, you'll see it in verse 19. To so think in modern terms, this is like the chorus of the song. Right? We've sung two songs already, and each song had a chorus that unifies the song. Well, here's our chorus. And therefore, it divides this song into, you could consider it as three verses, maybe three stanzas. And so we're going to work through each of these stanzas, and we're going to worship our way through it. And we're going to learn how we sing when it feels like God has looked away. Let's look at the first section of the text, verses 1 to 3. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. Psalm 80. Restore us, O God, to the choir master, according to lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, You who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Let's stop here. It's hard to capture 
what he's expressing here. I want to try and capture it in a question, and I'll explain to you why I'm using the question that I have. But I I think the, the question that we're seeing here is this. God, why aren't you doing what you said you would do? Now, you might read those verses and say, where are you getting that? But what the, what the psalmist is doing here is he's appealing to the very nature of God. Right? He's, he's saying, God, it's not, like we, it's not that we guessed who you are. It's not like we said God's a shepherd. It's not like we said God is enthroned upon the cherubim. It's like, no, God, you said that. That's who you are. You told us these things because you want us to know you, God. You want us to know that you're tenderhearted to your people, so you revealed to us as a shepherd. And you wanted us to know that you are majestic and holy and your glory shines forth. And so you revealed yourself as the God who sits enthroned upon the cherubim. You showed us this God. And so why aren't you acting like the shepherd? Why aren't you shining like the Holy One? Maybe to bring this down to street level, imagine my son Luke comes to me and he wants me to take him out. He wants me to teach him skating. Now, he's got some tactics that he can use, and some of them will be effective and some of them won't be. So he could come to me when I'm sitting in my chair reading a book, and he could say, Dad, and he could pout, and he could say, I want you to teach me how to skate. And he could whine. That's probably not going to work, though, right? He could, he could try and appeal to, you know, I, I asked Mom, she said no, but I'm asking you, you say, that won't work. We know this as parents. But if, if he comes to me and he looks me in the eye, and he says, but you're my dad. Who else is going to teach me how to skate? That's, that's who you are. That's going to work every time. Don't tell him this. That's, that's going to work every time. When he appeals to, to who I am, who I've revealed myself to be in his life. That's what the psalmist is doing here. He's looking to God and he's saying, this is who you are, God. You are the shepherd. So who else is going to shepherd us right now? Who else is going to lead us through this storm, God? You are the Holy One enthroned upon the cherubim with angels before you, who else can shine on us? Who else can save us? Who else can deliver us? God, why aren't you helping? Why aren't you doing who you've, what you said you would do? Why aren't you acting out of who you've revealed yourself to be? I think that's what we see here in these opening verses. And once again, I want to remind you that we are allowed to pray this way. God wrote this song for us. Think about it. God wrote this song for us because He wants us to appeal to His nature. He wants us to call upon Him to act. And He knows there will be seasons when we will need a song just like this. So just let's think through our own application. When we feel abandoned by God. And church, I would suggest that we as a people don't feel that today. Which makes this hard. It's hard for us to dive into this psalm when we don't feel this way. But if and when we do, We can and we should appeal to everything that God has revealed about His nature. There will be seasons when we'll need to appeal to Him and say, God, You have revealed Yourself to be the Father to the fatherless. We need You to meet us in our need. God, You have revealed Yourself to be the God of all comfort. We need comfort, God. You have revealed Yourself to be the Redeemer. Would You redeem us? You have revealed Yourself to be the Deliverer. Deliver us. Shepherd, lead us. Healer, heal us. God of glory, shine on us. We can and should pray this way. In seasons when it feels like God has looked away, we're allowed to ask Him why He isn't doing what He said He would do. We ask it in faith, but we ask it. Second, we ask 
how long will you be angry? It's a tough question, but we find it in verses 4 to 7. Look there with me. O Lord, God of hosts, that is to say, God of angel armies, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears, given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our enemies. Our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God. God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Again, don't remove yourself from the context of what's happening here. His, his, these nations are falling to the north of him. Surrounded, his people are weeping, and he's wondering, God, you're in control. You're sovereign. So remember, last week in Psalm 88, we were reminded that God is completely in control, and yet sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Last week we were reminded that it's okay to pray, God, it hurts, and God, it, it was you. Because you're in control. So we can pray that as individuals. Here we're reminded we can pray that corporately. And that's what he's doing. He's saying, God, it hurts. It hurts. Every day we're hearing reports about another tribe that's being wiped out in the north. In the opening verses, he refers to Ephraim, Manasseh. Those tribes are in the north. Desecrated. Wiped, Wiped off the planet. Dispersed into the nations, never to be seen again. The reports are coming in day by day. And this army is laughing as they make their approach to the city. And he's saying, God, how long are you going to let this happen? How long will you be angry with our prayers? Because we've been praying, God. You can imagine the psalmist. You think we're not praying? Like, they're praying. This army's coming. They've got little ones that they're afraid. You know, like, is this the end? And so they're praying and they're pleading with God. God, and, and, and yet, the more they pray, it's like the worse their circumstances become. The Assyrians are picking up steam. And there are going to be seasons when we feel that way. Like God is answering our prayers with anger. Those are the words he uses. How long will you be angry at our prayers? That's a heavy feeling. I want to ask an important question now. Was the psalmist right in his assessment? Was God angry at the people's prayers? My inclination was immediately to say no. I think that's our inclination. Say no, that can't be it. That can't be it. But let's just pause. Let's think through this biblically. For example, Amos chapter 5. If you're familiar at all with the book of Amos, this is a prophet. He was ministering to the northern tribes. He was ministering to the very people who were being wiped out by the Assyrians before this happened, of course. And he spoke from God to the people and he said, your worship is like clanging gongs. You can imagine Amos, this wasn't a popular sermon, but he's standing in front of his people and he's saying, stop singing. Stop your sacrifices. Stop all, this, stop all the offerings to the Lord. Just stop it. You are, you're annoying God because you're bringing your, your worship, but it's polluted. It's, it's hypocritical. You're worshiping him here, but then you're going home and you're ignoring the foreigners who live among you. You're ignoring the orphans and the widows, the people that God loves and cares about. You're, just, you're living in poverty, ignoring their plight. But then you come here and you worship God. God is angry with your worship. That was the message of Amos to the northern tribes of Israel who here in Psalm 80 are being wiped out in judgment. Was God angry with their prayers? We need to open a category in our mind that says He was. Is God always angry with our prayers when our circumstances are amok? 
Well, here's where we need to make sure we open another category in our minds. No, not always. In fact, I would say not even most of the time. We, we have the book of Job. If you are using the RMM reading plan, we just finished the book of Job. And boy, the, the big lesson in that book is that Job was enduring horrific circumstances. But was God angry with Job? Not in the slightest. God was very pleased with Job. Job was a righteous man. His sufferings, his hardships were accomplishing something entirely different. He was being tested. God was being glorified. There was a story that was going on that, that Job wasn't privy to. So sometimes in our suffering, God is angry with us. See Amos 5. Sometimes when we're suffering and we're going through hardship, God is not angry. See Job. We have to have both of those categories open in our mind. But here's where Psalm 80 is particularly helpful for us. Because whether or not we are in a season of, where there's, there's anger or whether we're in a season that's entirely different, it always feels like God is angry with our prayers when we're in the dark. And some of you have felt that before. And I would, I would imagine that there are people in the Ukraine right now, there are Christians who are really wrestling through this, and it'd be a painful thing, right? Who are wondering, like, Lord, is this judgment against our nation? Is this judgment against us? Lord, is, is this judgment against the Ukrainian church? I can guarantee you there are Christians who are wrestling through that right now. That's difficult. There are little struggling churches here in Ontario who have, over the last ten years, have watched as all the young people have fizzled out of the church and their, their numbers have shrunk and they're wrestling through whether or not they should sell the building. And as they go through this season of hardship, they're praying through Psalm 80. Lord, are you, are you angry with us? Is, this, is there some unconfessed sin that's in our church that's causing it to shrink? These are, these are real questions that the people of God ask. And Psalm 80 teaches us we're allowed to ask them. There's something healing about bringing these requests to the Lord. Sometimes it does feel as if He's angry with our prayers. We bring them to Him. We bring them to Him in worship. When God is silent, when He feels as if He's turned His face away from the church, we're allowed to ask Him, how long will you be angry? Then we go on and we ask Him this third question, which is, God, why did you let this happen? Why did you let this happen? This final section is the longest section in the psalm. We're going to read the whole thing. This is from verse 8 all the way down to 19. The psalmist says, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root. It filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It set out its branches to the sea. And it shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it. All that moves in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted for the Son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand. The Son of Man, whom you have set, whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. This concludes the psalm. 
Now, from the very beginning, the psalmist has made reference to Joseph in particular. I don't know if you caught that in the opening verse. But if you look back at verse 1, he says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. Now, you know, Israel was the father of the twelve tribes. Joseph was one of the twelve tribes. It was broken up between his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. But it's interesting here that the psalmist is making explicit reference to Joseph. It would make more sense for him to continue to use the Israel language if he's trying to encapsulate all of God's people. These horrors are happening to all of God's people, and yet he's, he keeps referring to Joseph. Why is that? I would argue that it's because of a blessing that was spoken over Joseph in Genesis 49. I think the psalmist is drawing from this biblical language that would have been very familiar for him and his people. In Genesis 49, Israel puts this blessing on Joseph. And he says, Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a string with his branches run over the wall. Now the archers bitterly attacked him. They shot at him and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So I think the psalmist here is drawing this language because Joseph was was brought out of Egypt and he was planted in the land. I love this vivid imagery that he uses, right? He describes God as going forth and and clearing out the land. I don't know if there's any gardeners here, um, but we had this little garden in in the front yard at our old house and it was full of these uh, nasty cedar spruce bushes. It was a mess. And it was hard work to clear out the land and then to plant the new stuff. And he's drawn on this language and he says, God, it's like you did that with us. Remember, you fulfilled this blessing for Joseph. You took us out of Egypt and you you cleared out the land and then you you planted him. You planted Joseph in the land. And and he was fruitful and and he grew. And Lord, we grew as your people. And we reached out to the sea and our roots went deep and there was there was shade for those around us. It was glorious, God, and you did it. You were like a wall around us. You protected us. But then you seemingly abandoned us. And again, he, so he's, you can see, he's drawing on this imagery of that we're the vine that was planted. We were fruitful. We were growing. But then he says, but God, then you took down the wall. And all of a sudden, all the bystanders, they came over and they started ripping off all of the fruit, God, all the good stuff. That was for your glory, all of our fruit, but it was ripped off. And the wild boar came in and he ripped us to pieces. And you, I'm surely he's talking about the Assyrian army right now. This wild boar comes in and just rips us to shreds, God. Uproots us tears us apart, and where this once beautiful vine that you planted, where it was once growing and multiplying, now it's just a desecrated mess. The psalmist is perplexed. William Plumer captures it. He says, how comes it that God, who is wise and just, should have taken such pains with a vine for long years and then leave it exposed to utter destruction? Now again, it's hard for us to empathize. We don't know what it's like to be an Israelite with the northern tribes being wiped out. We don't know what it's like to have a history of of the Davidic kingship and and Solomon's wisdom in the background only to see this desecration in our present reality. It's hard for us to get our mind there. Just think at a lower level. How many of us have experiences where we had a family and it was a fruitful family and it was healthy and it was strong and it felt like God's blessing was all over it And then it just felt like God removed the walls. And our kids 
walked away from the faith and the, the wild boar just ripped it all to pieces and, and everything that we thought that we had, everything that it felt like God had built up in our midst, we're grieving the loss of it. We're like, what happened, God? Why did you build it? And then let it get torn apart. Some of you have been in failing churches. You felt the sting of those annual meetings where every year you come back and the membership is a little bit smaller and the giving's a little bit lower and there's just a bit more fighting and there's a bit more frustration. And every year you come back and you wonder, like, God, I remember when this was fruitful. I remember when we were taking buses and picking up kids from the community and bringing them to church and it was a buzz and we were worshiping you in this same place and now it's just a desecration. And we're wondering, God, why did you build it up only to tear it down? Maybe you've been a part of church splits and the infighting and division. The wild boar is just ripped to shreds. See, the wild boar comes in various forms. The wild boar of legalism wipes out entire congregations. The wild boar of heresy leaves entire denominations in shambles with seminaries that now they feel like a monument to days gone by. You go to these seminaries now to learn about how there is no God. You wonder, God, why, how did this happen? The wild boar of scandal still destroying churches today. The list goes on and on. The bore of sickness and tragedy, famine, war, politics. Ultimately, the devil himself is animating this bore. He sends him in. Sometimes the Lord just lengthens the leash. He comes and he rips up the vine. The enemy loves to steal, to kill, and destroy. He's good at it. He does it. And when he does it, when that damage is done and we're left surveying the landscape, It's not wrong for us to ask, God, why did you let this happen? Some of you probably are still asking, you still have an unresolved question in your mind from things you've experienced in the past. It's difficult. But we have Psalm 80 because God knows that there's going to be seasons. Perhaps there's going to be a lifetime. Perhaps you never get the answer. But you've got this question rolling around. You're allowed to bring that to Him. As we come to the conclusion today, I just want to point out just the, the final three verses here in this psalm. Interspersed with that last request, that last bit of confusion, he makes a final request that I want to make sure we see because God has intervened in a way that the psalmist never could have anticipated. If you look again at verses 17 to 19, here's what he prays. He says, But God, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Oh, give us life. We will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So interspersed with the psalmist saying, God, you planted us. Remember, you brought Joseph out. You promised he was blessed by his father. And you planted him like a vine and he grew. But then, Lord, in our rebellion and our sin, they cut down the vine. Our enemies have thrown it into the fire. The wild boar has destroyed us. But God, if you would just raise up another son... Another son like Joseph, I'm sure the psalmist is thinking. Another son who could be planted in the land like you did with Joseph. Who could grow, who would be fruitful. Oh Lord, then we'll turn to you. We won't repeat our mistakes. We'll bless you, we'll honor you, we'll love you, we'll serve you. Just, Just plant another son in the land. That's the prayer of the psalmist. But now we as as Christians on the other side of the cross, as we hear that prayer, oh, you can hear that God has answered that in a miraculous way, hasn't He? The psalmist wanted to be restored to the land. But God said, no, I'm going to go a step further. I'm going to restore my people to inherit the new heavens and the new earth. The psalmist wanted another son like Joseph who who could be planted, 
who could grow, who could be a blessing. God says, no, I'm going to give you the Son of Man. I'm going to give you the God-Man. I'm going to give you my Son Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to come. All blessing is going to come through Him. I'm going to plant Him. You saw what happened when I planted Joseph. You saw how that ended. Watch what happens when I plant the Son of Man. Watch the blessing that comes. He wanted to, the psalmist wanted to, to stretch out again across the land of the Mediterranean. God says, I'm going to plant a son who's going to stretch across the globe, across the generations. He's going to continue to grow and to spread. You can't read Psalm 80 without hearing the Lord Jesus Christ declare in John 15:5, I am the vine. Doesn't it, doesn't it ring a little bit differently when you just listen to Psalm 80? I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Psalm 80 gives voice to this lament. But it points forward to a glorious hope. He's praying that God would plant the vine. God has planted the vine. But what's the chorus of the psalm? What's the, the primary complaint, the primary request? He's saying, God, would you let your face shine on your people again? That's the, that's the prayer of the psalmist. Let your face shine on us again. God heard the prayer of this psalmist. And God has caused his face to shine in a way that is beyond comprehension. So John, in the opening of his gospel, declares, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The Apostle Paul, writing in, in 2 Corinthians 4, says, for God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How has He shone in our hearts? In the face of Jesus Christ. See that? God answered the longing of this psalmist in a way that He never could have anticipated. God has shone into our hearts. And that light comes to us in the face of Jesus Christ. And so when we ask the question of the psalmist, when we say, God, why aren't you doing what you said you would do? We look to Christ. And we see the glory of God on full display. God has a plan. And it's working. God has not left us in our suffering. He's entered into our suffering. God hasn't left us in our death. Again, this psalm is written as people are dying at the hands of the Assyrians. Well, God has entered into our death. Our death that has come as the result of our sin, just like the northern tribes. God's entered into our death and He has broken the chains of death. He set us free from our enemy. In Christ, the face of God has shone upon His people. We might ask the second question, which is, how long will you be angry, God? Because we feel like He's angry. But in Christ, God's righteous anger against our sins has been satisfied forever at the cross. Hear this. While we may endure periods of discipline, we know that if we are in Christ, God's disposition towards us is always that of a loving Father. If you are in Christ... God's disposition towards you is that of a loving Father. Some of you know that, but you don't know that. You feel consequences for your sin. Because sometimes our sin, even while it's forgiven, there are consequences. There's pain. There's hurt. Relationships are broken. They don't get restored. Things are taken from us. They're not brought back. You steal a candy from the candy bar, you're forgiven in Christ, but you've got to repay the candy bar and you might get a fine. Right? There are consequences for our sin. But here's what you need to hear. If you are in Christ the consequences that God lets you feel, they're not punitive. 
It's not like God saying, hey, you know what? Jesus has paid for your sin, but you are such a nasty sinner, I'm going to take a pound of flesh out of you too. If if there's going to be real forgiveness for you, then you need to hurt for a while. Sometimes we feel like that's what God's doing. That's not what he's doing. Jesus has taken all of God's anger against our sin. Jesus has borne it at the cross. We bear it no more. God is not going to put his angry thumb on you because of your sin anymore. Jesus has paid for it. So when you feel discomfort and you feel consequences and you feel some of the pain that comes with sin, that's not God punishing you. That's your heavenly Father disciplining you, shaping you, forming you in love. His disposition towards you, if you are in Christ, is always that of a loving Father. Oh, that we would remember this. As we sing and pray Psalm 80, we need to store that away in our hearts. And finally, we may find ourselves asking, God, why did you let this happen? Why did you let it happen, Lord? Why did you let my family fall apart, Lord? Why did you let our church shrink and dwindle and shrivel and die? Why, why did the witness of, of Christianity in my country become so small that we feel like we've been snuffed out like a candle? Why, why are there soldiers ravaging through our city? Why have I been forced to flee from my land? God, why did you let this happen? But in Christ, as we ask that question, we're reminded that our suffering will never, ever, ever have the final word. Every trial is temporary. Every apparent defeat gives way to glory. God works all things for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. Even when we feel like we're lambs that are being led to the slaughter, we can declare with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, no, 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 in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The vine has been replanted, brothers and sisters. The wild boar has been wounded. His defeat will surely come. Amen? Amen. And yet, we don't always feel like conquerors. Even though all that we just said is true, even though we know that the light of God's face shines on us through Christ, there are going to be seasons when we feel like we're in the dark. Sometimes, Romans 8, oh, the triumph feels like home. But sometimes Psalm 80 feels like home. And that's okay, because guess what? God wrote them both. He wrote it for us. And when we wonder why God's not helping, when we wonder why He seems angry, when we wonder why He ever allowed the enemy to operate on such a long leash, should we ever find ourselves worshiping in a subway tunnel? Should we ever find ourselves at that 10th meeting after 10 years of shrink and shrink and decline and decline? God has given us a song to sing. I pray that we never need it, but it's important that we know where to find it. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, I pray. First, I can't read this without just thanking you, Lord. I thank you that we are in a season of, feels like celebration. Perhaps we're not that far, but Lord, what what a season we're in. There's peace in our country Lord, there's, there's health in our church. 
Um, Lord, we're thankful. And, and we, it's right for us to thank you. And nevertheless, Lord, we also we come to Psalm 80, and I know that while there's peace in our church, perhaps there are families here today where Psalm 80 is the prayer. And Lord, we want to come alongside those brothers and sisters and pray with them, Lord. Lord, we wonder why you allowed this to happen. Why there was life and vitality, and now it just feels like a season of, of despair. Lord, I pray that you would help those brothers, those sisters to look to you. Help them to bring their, their concerns, Lord, their grief to you. And thank you that, Lord, you meet them. Lord, we, we lift up our gaze and we look at the church and we know that, Lord, we're just one small expression of your church, but your church spreads across this world. And, Lord, there are many of our brothers and sisters right now who are praying this through tears. And, God, our heart breaks for them. I, God, I pray that you'd meet them in a special way. I pray that they would see this psalm, Lord, that they would know that there's a song for them to sing. A song to sing when their country's being blown to shreds. A song to sing when they wonder where home is for them in the future. A song to sing for the churches that have been racked by scandal and deceit. Oh Lord, I pray that you would meet them in a special way. And I thank you for your kindness and your mercy that you do meet us in our need. You don't call us to pretend that everything's right. You give us words to sing and prayers to pray that express the brokenness that's all around us, Lord. And Lord, it does grow our longing. And I pray, Lord, as we turn to you now and we respond in song, that you would help us, Lord, to long. To long for life as it should be. Lord, you've put a little longing in all of our hearts for Eden. There are people here today who don't believe in you, Lord. I know that. And yet, there is something inside of us that longs for a world we've never been to. A world where we live forever. A world where there's no conflict and just peace. And that longing is from you, Lord. You made us with an appetite for this world that we've never known. Thank you for the appetite. Thank you for the longing. Thank you for the lament. Thank you that it leads to glory. Lord, help us as we wait. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Our worship team is going to lead us. We're going to respond in song. Would you please stand with me?